utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hear them in our native language? Passions, Mendes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadonia, Potus, and Asia, Phlegia and Pervasia, Egypt and parts of Libya were near Crean, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretan and Arabs were hearing them declaring the wonders of God in creatures, pardon me, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much to whine. Friends, as we get to work here in Acts chapter 2, please pray with me. Our God, thank you for this chance that we have today to look at your word. And we ask that as we have this passage open in front of us now, that you would give us not only understanding and insight, but that you would give us your spirit and that we would be changed and transformed as a result of what we see here today. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Very, very, very warm welcome to you here at Reality Church London. If you're new or visiting, my name is Bijan. I'm the pastor. And we, just last week, began a new sermon series. We're looking at the book of Acts for a few months. And the title, the theme of this sermon series is Church Alive. And what we're asking is, what are the marks, what are the characteristics of a church that is alive in its city? Because we want to be a church alive in London. We want to be a church that gives God glory, but also lives and serves for the good of this city. And so we're looking at the book of Acts to learn from the first Christian church what it means to be a church alive with the hopes that we can continue to be a church alive in London. Now, today and for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. A church alive is a church filled with the Spirit. But as soon as I say the Holy Spirit, that immediately raises some questions even as we read this passage, there are some of you here today, you're not a Christian, you're exploring the faith. Maybe this is your first time at church or your first time in a while. And so you read a passage like this and there's a violent wind and there's tongues of fire and you say, what is going on? What does this mean? That's actually the very same question that was asked in the passage. What does this mean? For others, you are Christian. You've been part of this church or maybe other churches. And yet, we come to this passage bringing all kinds of questions about the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to live in the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? And so for all of us, whether you're new and exploring or this is something you've been thinking about for a long time, beginning today and for the next few weeks, I think God has something to show us from Acts about what it means to be a church that's filled with the Spirit. Now, today, I'm telling you up front, is an introductory sermon. I'm not able in this sermon alone to say everything that there is to say about the Holy Spirit. So please come back over the next few weeks as we continue to unpack this incredibly important teaching, this incredibly important part of church life. But today's sermon, again, looking at Acts 2, kind of an introduction to the role of the Spirit in the life of the church. And so I want to show you three things today. First, who the Holy Spirit is. Second, what the Holy Spirit does. 
And then last, how the Holy Spirit does what he does. So who the Holy Spirit is, what the Spirit does, and how the Spirit does what he does. So first, who is the Holy Spirit? Three things I want to show you to answer that question today. Who is the Holy Spirit? First, the Holy Spirit is the presence of God with his people. Look with me, if you would, at verse 3 of our passage. The disciples are sitting in an upper room. They're praying. And all of a sudden, a wind blows. It looks like a violent wind. It's a kind of force. It's a power. And it says in verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, it says in the text, seemed to be. It wasn't literal fire, but it seemed to be. That's what it felt like. That's what it looked like. Why is that significant? Because throughout the Bible, everywhere in the Old Testament, when God's presence comes to people, it looks and it feels like fire. And so here in Acts 2, when we're told this violent rushing wind comes and the result is it looks like fire is with each person, this is the presence of God. This is the presence of God that has come to be with the people who are the followers of Jesus. The most famous example, the most well-known example of this fire symbolizing the presence of God, Exodus chapter 3. Do you know the story if you've read Exodus? Moses has been called by God to lead the people out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt. And to do that, God comes to Moses. But how does he come to Moses? Moses is there tending his sheep, taking care of shepherds. And all of a sudden in the distance, he sees a bush that's on fire, but the bush is not being burned. And he says, I'm going to go and see what this is. And Moses makes his way over to this bush that's burning but not being consumed. And he hears a voice speak to him. And ultimately, that voice says, I am who I am. He proclaims himself to be the very presence of God with Moses, symbolized by fire. And that's just one of many examples throughout the Old Testament. Fire is the symbol of the glory, the very presence of God. Acts 2, here's what's astounding. In the book of Exodus, Moses can only get so close. And when Moses comes into the presence of God, symbolized by this fire, God says, take off your shoes. The place you're standing is holy ground. You're in a dangerous space. You are in the presence of the infinite, the majestic. But now, this God who was barely approachable in the Old Testament, now something has happened that this God comes to dwell with each of the followers of Jesus. This is the personal presence of the living God with the disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll talk about how that's possible towards the end, but that's who the Holy Spirit is, the presence of God with you and within you. Not only is the Spirit the presence of God, but secondly, I want to show you the Spirit is a person. The Spirit is a person. Sometimes when you talk about the Holy Spirit, if you've ever seen the movie Star Wars, sometimes people think that the Holy Spirit is like the force, it's just this vague thing that you kind of tap into in moments of crisis. And I actually want you to know, when you read the Bible, the way the Holy Spirit is talked about, he's a person. Now, he's not a person in the same way that you and I are persons. For instance, the Spirit doesn't have a body. But do you see again in verse 3, the text says, the fire comes down and it is with each of them. What that means is the Spirit is a person that you can know and be known by personally. 
The relationship that you have with the Spirit, it's not through someone else. It's not through an institution. It's a personal relationship that you can have with the very presence of God himself. It's with each of the disciples. By the way, the Spirit coming and falling down, it's with all of them. It's not just for the super Christians. It's not just for the professional Christians who lead the services. It's the personal presence of God personally with every follower of Jesus Christ. So presence, person, and third, and most important for our text today, the Spirit is power. The Spirit is power. When the Spirit of God comes down, verse 4 says they're all filled with the Spirit. From this point forward, these disciples are radically and forever changed. You see, prior to Acts 2, these disciples, they were in the city of Jerusalem, and they were timid, they were fearful, they were afraid. And the reason for that is their Lord, their leader, Jesus, has just been killed. He's been crucified. And they're thinking, oh my goodness, they've killed him, we're next. And they're thinking, we're going to be doomed. And so they're gathered together with timidity and with fear, But now, as soon as the Spirit of God comes down, their lives are changed. And these same people who were timid and fearful are now filled with freedom and boldness. And they make Jesus known not only here in their city, but ultimately through these first Christians, the message of God's gospel goes out into the whole world. In other words, the Spirit, as it comes down into their life, brings remarkable power. It brings freedom and it brings courage. Now, we actually see something of this pointed to. Look down at the bottom of the text, verse 13. This is really interesting. The Spirit comes down. We'll unpack the middle of the text in a second. But the result of what everyone around the disciples, what they see, look at what they say in verse 13. However, some of them made fun of them and said, they've had too much to drink. So the crowds look at the disciples who are filled with the Spirit who have experienced this new power, and their conclusion is they kind of look like they've had too much to drink. They're acting like people who've had too much to drink. Now, that's really interesting because it's not the only place in the Bible that there's a connection made between the Spirit and being drunk on wine. Paul the Apostle actually makes this connection in Ephesians chapter 5. It's fascinating. In Ephesians 5, Paul says this, Don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Paul's making a connection that we kind of see alluded to here in Acts 2, and it's actually stunning. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor in London about 60 years ago. Before he was a pastor, he was a medical physician. And so he looked at this text in Ephesians 5, and he said, you know, this is actually really interesting. Because from a pharmacological perspective, a medicinal perspective... Alcohol is a depressant. What that means is, alcohol, if it gets into your body, it depresses your senses. It makes you less aware of your reality. And that's why people, when they have too much to drink, they end up having a kind of confidence and freedom. Because they're less aware of what's going on around them. When the Spirit of God comes into your life, you also have a new kind of freedom and confidence. But the Spirit is not a depressant, it's a heightener. 
What the Spirit of God does when it comes into your life, it doesn't depress your senses. It makes you more aware of what's happening around you. It makes you more in tune with reality. And from that being more aware, you get a whole new kind of freedom and confidence. I'll give you an example. 2 Kings chapter 6. This is a story in the Old Testament. The people of God are camping in the bottom of a valley. And that night, unbeknownst to them, an enemy army comes and surrounds them, makes camp all around them, and they're surrounded. So in the morning, one of the servants of one of the leaders of the people of God goes outside, and he's stretching, kind of waking up, getting his morning coffee, and he looks up on the hills, and he instantly is shaken to the core because he realizes we're surrounded, we're doomed. So he runs back into his tent, and he says to the prophet Elisha, Alas, my master, how shall we do? So he's looking at his life. He's looking at his surroundings and he's saying, we're toast. And then Elisha looks at him and with the calmness of a prophet says, don't be afraid. Because those who are with us are more than those that are with them. And you could almost imagine the servant saying, nope, I've done the math. We are surrounded and we're toast. But then Elisha prays. And Elisha says, God, open his eyes that he can see. And in that moment, God answers that prayer. He opens the eyes of the servant, and he sees now on those same hills even more chariots, but these are the chariots of fire. This is the army of God sent to protect and deliver his people. And that day, the people of God are saved. Now, what happened, and this is so key, you've got to hear this. When the servant runs to Elisha and says, we're doomed, we're in trouble, Elisha doesn't say, you're right, this looks really bad. Let's ask God to send help. He doesn't do that. He simply prays for the servant's eyes to be opened to see the help that was always there. That's what the Spirit of God does. He gives you more faith, more ability to see invisible realities that are all around you all the time. And when the Spirit of God opens your eyes, it brings a new freedom, a new confidence into your life that gives you boldness and joy even in the hardest and darkest moments and seasons. That's what happens to these disciples. They're given the Spirit of God and it brought power into their life by making them even more aware of the invisible realities of God's presence with them and God's presence for them. That's who the Holy Spirit is. The personal presence of God bringing power into your life, giving you the ability to see things that would be invisible other than with the eye of faith. That's who the Holy Spirit is. So much more I can say, but that's a quick intro here in Acts 2. Who is the Spirit? But that leads us now to question two, and this is the middle of our passage. What does the Spirit of God do? Many answers I could give, and if we were doing a whole series on the Holy Spirit, we could spend weeks looking at the New Testament. But here in Acts 2, I want to draw out one theme of what the Holy Spirit does, and we're going to see this repeated over and over again in the book of Acts. What does the Holy Spirit do? He equips and empowers the church for mission. What the Spirit of God does is he comes into your life to help you Make Jesus known, to make Jesus beautiful, to share Jesus with others. The Holy Spirit comes to equip and empower the church for mission. So let me show you that in the text. 
Verse 4 describes, it says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And you say, oh good, a sermon on tongues. I've had so many questions about that. But actually here, what this passage is describing is not the kind of tongues that you might have questions about that comes up later. That'll be a different topic, a different sermon. What's fascinating here is when the Spirit of God comes down, the disciples are filled and they begin speaking with other tongues. And you say, well, what's that about? We don't have to wonder. Verses 5 through 11 tell us. So look with me, verse 5. It says, now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Remember, all of this is happening at Pentecost. Pentecost was a celebration. It was a festival. Jerusalem was swelling with people. It was a packed city. And people from all over the world came. Verse 6, when they heard this sound, the coming of this violent rushing wind, the Spirit of God coming, it says a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because each one heard their own language being spoken. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? That's a tiny village in North Israel. Aren't all these people Galileans? How is it then that each of us hears them in our native language? And then verses 9, or you know, kind of 8 and 9 down to the end of verse 11, describes basically from Everywhere in the globe, even as far away as Rome, these people had come to Jerusalem. And now when the Spirit of God comes down, these people who hadn't learned those other languages are speaking the praise and the wonder of God. And they're doing so in languages that are the languages spoken by the peoples who have come to the city. In other words, here's what's happening. From the first moment the Spirit of God comes down to fill his church, the result is that the disciples of Jesus are helped to make the gospel known to other people in ways that make sense to them, in ways that they can understand. The Spirit of God, when it comes to the church, equips them for mission. The Spirit-filled church is a mission-minded church. So the Spirit comes, and now these disciples are speaking languages, and they're sharing the good news of God. And so the people from Rome, and the people from Crete, and the people from Phrygia, they say, I can understand that. That's my language. I get it. Now, this is huge. This is so significant. The fact that this happens on the very first day the Spirit comes down and fills the disciples, that tells us a lot about what the church is and what the church is supposed to do. So let me just take a minute. What does this tell us about what the church is? First, it tells us the church is for everyone. From day one, from the very first moment the Spirit of God fills the Christian church, what do we see? This is not for one people group, one race, one gender. This is for the whole world. And so on day one, the church is showing forth itself to be the most diverse and inclusive group of people that the world has ever seen. We will be, and we'll talk more about this in future weeks, but we will be a church alive in London only to the degree that we reflect this. That we have a message that's for everyone. That we have a message that's for any person who's willing to come and listen to Jesus. 
Doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your political background, doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter what school you went to or how much money you make. This is a message for everyone from day one when the church was born. It was a message for all peoples. That's the nature of the church. But it also tells us something about the work of the church, what the church is supposed to do. And so right now I'm speaking especially to those of you who are Christian and who call Reality Church London home. If we're a church that's filled with the Spirit, what that means is we're going to be a church that's passionate about helping the people around us know Jesus. And that means we're going to have to be engaged in the work of translation. You see, the first Christians, when they're filled with the Spirit, what do they do? (laughs) They share the gospel in ways that the people around them can make sense of. And if we're filled with the Spirit, the result is going to be we as a church live in London, constantly translating the message of Jesus so that the people around us can understand it and can engage with it. Now, translation is always an act of love. When you do the hard work of learning how to communicate a truth into another language, that shows that you love the person that you've translated for. It's hard work. And we, if we're going to be a church that is filled with the Spirit, we're going to be engaged in the hard labor of love of translating the good news of Jesus in ways that people here in London can understand. Laman Sane, who's a scholar from Gambia, says that Christianity is unique amongst all world religions because it's the only religion that is communicated, is passed on, apart from the language and the originating culture of its founder. And he goes on to say about this work of translation, without translation, there would be no Christianity or Christians. Translation is the church's birthmark as well as its missionary benchmark. The church would be unrecognizable and unsustainable without it. We're to translate. We're to help the people around us understand. So let me give you an example. If someone at your job says to you, hey, why are you a Christian? One answer that you could give is you could say something like this. Well, I'm a Christian because God elected me for salvation. And I believed in the sacrificial death of Jesus and his blood covers all of my sin. Now, you could say that. And if you did, it would be technically true. And the person you're talking to would have no idea what you mean. Absolutely. Election, the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, what is this person talking about? But if that same person were to come to you and say, why are you a Christian? And you said something like, well, you know, all my life I've been trying to feel like I belong, like I matter. And in Jesus, I met somebody who sees me to the bottom and yet loves me to the sky. Can can I tell you about him? That person might say, yeah, we should talk, because I want that too. Now, same truths in both sentences, but one is translated. One is spoken in a way that the people around you can understand. It makes sense. And when the Spirit of God comes to the church, when the Spirit of God fills his people, what's the result? They communicate the message of God's good news in ways that people can, around them can understand. May God help us to be a church alive, a church that shares God's good news in this city in ways that people can understand. How do we do that? How does the Spirit help us in the work of this mission? How does the Spirit help us do this translation? 
That's the last part of our sermon. And we have to acknowledge that mission is hard. Sharing Jesus with others, that's hard. And the reason it's hard is because some of us are just trying to survive each day. We don't have the time, the energy. For others of us, the idea of talking to another person about Jesus, totally scary. What if they ask me a question? I won't be able to answer them. For others still, we're afraid of our reputation. We think if we out ourselves as Christians, what are people going to think? Are they still going to like me? And so for all these reasons, mission, being the church, sharing and translating, it's hard. How does the Spirit equip us to do this work? And the answer is by pointing us to Jesus Christ. One theologian that I've read says the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight pointing us to Jesus. What's a floodlight? A floodlight is a very big light, and the job of the floodlight is to make something else illuminated. You don't look at the floodlight, you look at what it's illuminating. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit of God is like a floodlight illuminating the person and the work of Jesus Christ to you. Said differently, the Spirit of God comes into your life and it takes things that you already know about Jesus and it lights them up in your heart. And it makes it more real and more beautiful to you than it had ever been. One pastor years ago trying to illustrate this put it like this. He was describing how one day he was walking down the street. It was actually here in London. He was walking down the street and he saw a father and son holding hands. And all of a sudden, they stopped and that father bent down, he scooped up his little son, he gave him the biggest hug and kisses and said, I love you, I love you, and put him back down and they kept walking. Now, the pastor watching this happen said, that's what the Holy Spirit does. You see, that little boy was absolutely and legally the son of that father. But in that moment, when the father scooped him up, what was legally true became experientially felt. It became more real to him in that moment. It became beautiful and it filled him with joy and peace. It wasn't just a legal reality, it was a felt one. That's what the Spirit of God does. It takes the truth that you know, it takes the truth about Jesus Christ, and it lights it up in your heart. It makes it more real and more clear and more beautiful, such that the truths you believe become power, becomes force in your life. And so this morning, as we think about the Spirit being a floodlight illuminating Jesus to us, here's what I want you to think about. Jesus Christ is the greatest act of translation the world has ever known. We've said, right, an act of love is to translate the message of Christianity to people around you in ways they can understand. But think about it. How could we have ever learned God's language? How could you and I ever have gotten to God, the infinite, the holy, the majestic? We couldn't. If we had any hope of knowing God, he would have to come to us. He would have to translate. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 says, Jesus is the word made flesh. One author paraphrasing that passage says, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. He came into our block. Jesus learned our language. He came into our story. And as we see Jesus Christ, we see him filled with grace and truth. That on one hand, the truth is a hard truth that we are in need of saving. 
We are in need of God's redeeming love. But not just truth, grace, we see that he was so glad and so willing to die for us that he went to the cross with joy. That you were so beautiful and precious to Jesus that he died for you with joy that his death would be your salvation, would be your saving. And so what we see in Jesus is God saying, you could never get to me, but I'll come to you. And in the person of Jesus, we have the greatest act of translation in which grace and truth come together and we're brought into God's family. The Holy Spirit takes that truth and it lights it up in your heart. It makes it real. It makes it powerful and beautiful. And when that happens, we become a church alive. We become a community of people that can go out into London and make Jesus known in the ways and through the images and through the stories that help people encounter this message. May God help us to be a church alive filled with the Spirit and on mission in our city. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for this opportunity that we've had to look at Acts 2 and to think about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And so now we pray, we ask that you would do just that, that the Spirit of God at work with us and in us right now would make Jesus real and beautiful, that we would see him more clearly, and that as a result, we'd be a church alive, making Jesus known in this city, helping others understand the incredible truth of Jesus in ways that make sense to them. God, please do this. We beg you, we ask you. As we respond now, we pray, meet us and open our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.